the men's training class that we enjoyed a bit earlier this afternoon went successfully and went well. And we're certainly thankful for those men who attended that. And we look forward to the opportunity to implement some of those things that we've learned about and studied. And as we've gathered this evening to look at yet another study in the book of Exodus, might I direct your attention to where we left some three weeks ago. And while you're turning to those chapters, chapters 12 and 13 of the book of Exodus, might in fact I use that opportunity to express appreciation to those men who so capably and ably filled in the pulpit not only last Sunday evening but also the Sunday prior to that. I believe that was Trail and also Lester as they filled in on the Sunday night lessons. Again, very appreciative for those men, their ability, their willingness, and the tremendous job that no doubt they in fact did. We began a series of lessons several weeks ago now, studying in the book of Exodus on Sunday evening. And as we did that, we set before ourselves the task of studying along with our youngsters who are preparing for the Bible Bowl, because the opening 24 chapters of that book is in fact their text, excluding chapter 6. And in our study, we have already completed the first 11 chapters of the book of Exodus in our Sunday evening lessons. As we have studied them on many occasions, we've been reminded of just how practical, just how appropriate, and just how easy it is to see the daily lessons that we can implement based on this text, even though it was written so long ago. I believe we'll find the same to be true tonight. In fact, when I see the blood is the title that I've given to the lesson this evening, taken word for word from Exodus twelve thirteen. As we revisit that text shortly tonight, as well as some of the other features of that chapter in the next, we'll be able to see that though those events describe things for the children of Israel, they are so deeply meaningful, at least in parallel fashion for us today. It is with that in mind that might I suggest we take the same approach that we have in the days that have preceded us. Namely, let's look at the historical features first, reminding ourselves of the literal historical events. And then we'll seek to extract some lessons that will be useful for us today. It is with that thought in mind that first let's cast the spotlight on those historical features of chapters 12 and 13. It's possible to summarize them rather briefly in this set of ideas I've listed on this slide. I've been reasonably brief about it, but I think many of the highlights as we expound upon it will be easy enough to appreciate as you open your Bible and look at those two chapters of the sacred text. You might recall that till this point, nine of the ten plagues have been completed. God has in fact brought the destruction and the terror upon the nation of Egypt as a result of their defiance of the God of heaven. And as they have done that, even the tenth plague has been promised. It has been threatened. God, you might remember, forewarned Moses that one more plague will come, and when it does, I will use that as a sign and wonder to show to the Pharaoh and all of Egypt exactly that I am the Lord. Thus, with the threatening of that tenth plague, the opening part of the opening saga of chapter 12 is some preparatory matters for the children of Israel. There were some things that they needed to do in order to prepare for the coming of the tenth plague. In fact, we notice that's an immediate distinction between those plagues that preceded it. There was nothing to prepare for the flies and the murrain of beasts and the hail and the locusts and the others. God brought those things at the appropriate time. 
But on this occasion, Israel had to do something so that they would be ready for the coming of the tenth plague. Because it was going to be true that with the coming of that plague, they were going to leave Egypt. But not only that, they had to be ready so that they would not endure the terror, the horror, and the death that would accompany the coming of the tenth plague. What were these matters of preparation and how were they to be ready for them? Chapter 12 thunderously begins with God relaying to Moses what he was to relay to Israel as they made ready for the coming of the tenth plague. The first thing to be done, fix the calendar for the children of Israel. The event that was to occur was so momentous and it was so significant that the calendar was to begin with this month. This is going to be the first month of the year to you. Regardless what the previous calendar had been, this new calendar was to set for their own the nature of what the yearly and annual nature of the year for the children of Israel was going to be. In addition, there were some specific instructions and details regarding the Passover. And thus, let's begin with them. In verse number 3, and beginning on through mostly the remainder of that chapter, we find many rather detailed, specific, and careful instructions given with respect to this matter called the Passover. It went in summary fashion like this. Each family, each household, at least that was the ideal, was to take a lamb. They were to gather or take up the lamb on the tenth day of this first month. They were to keep up that lamb until the fourteenth day. All the while, that lamb was to be a male of the first year and without blemish. They thus had to be very careful about the lamb that was selected. And not only upon selecting it, they had to maintain a careful separation for it for, again, that period of a few days. Upon the arrival of the 14th day at even, they were to in fact take the life of that lamb. However, notice they were to break no bones of it. They were to be very careful and to maintain the integrity of its blood because that was going to be used for another purpose later. As they took the life of that lamb, it is also to be noted that in the course of this chapter, they were to make preparation because that family was going to consume it. But as they prepared it again, no bone was to be broken. And furthermore, it was to be roast with fire. It was not to be boiled. It was not to be prepared in any other fashion. Roast with fire and furthermore eaten that night with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. The contents of the meal were thus specified. And what's more, we notice none of it, at least in principle, was to remain till morning. Any amount that was, in fact, to remain was not to be consumed. It was to be burned with fire. And furthermore, after the meal that evening, they were to remain in that house and not go out at all that night. You might note again with me how unorthodox and how unusual those instructions may have appeared. For after all, for the previous nine plagues, nothing as detailed as that was ever prescribed. In fact, in many instances there, there was little, if any, preparation to be made at all. And yet suddenly now the Israelites themselves had to collect a lamb, prepare it appropriately, eat the food that night, and do so with all the character and all the regard for the solemnity of these commandments. 
And now back to that blood that I mentioned earlier. We made note of the fact that the blood was not to be just thrown aside or discarded, but rather they were to take of the blood of that lamb, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in it, and spread that blood not only on the doorpost, but also on the lintel. And furthermore, again, they were to remain in that house in which they'd put the blood all night, and therein they were to carefully and closely remain. Doesn't it seem a bit unusual? Doesn't it seem unorthodox to consider these commandments of God? What good is this going to do? Can you perhaps hear some who might have been rebels in the group? Why do I have to take one of my best lambs and a male at that? Perfect and without blemish and take its life like this. We already have plenty of food otherwise. Perhaps you can hear some other times in Scripture where unorthodox commandments of God were given. In Joshua, the sixth chapter, when God told Joshua, you march around this city of Jericho, not once or twice. You march around it once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day, march around it seven times, and then shout at the appropriate time, and the wall shall fall, and entrance to you shall be granted into this well-walled city of Jericho. There isn't a military strategist in the world who would, by his own knowledge, adopt that kind of strategy for the overwhelming and taking of a military city. But yet Joshua, in the duty and in the responsibility of the time, did exactly as God had commanded. And lo and behold, when they had completed their thirteenth time around that city, as they gave their shout, the walls fell. They immediately went into the city and spoiled it, and God gave them the victory. They had done exactly what God had commanded. One could list any number of other attributes in the Scriptures where unorthodox commandments were given. Might we note this certainly would have to be listed in it, this Passover matter. But might we also be so quick to know, with this specific of the Passover... God was looking directly down the stream of time, 15 centuries, until the coming of the true Passover lamb. The coming of the one who would not only be the perfect antitype of all of these matters, but who would amplify and take to a whole new level all the meaning that is to be found in it. It is to be noted then that this Passover is deeply significant, not only for the ancient Hebrews, but also for us today. And in that regard... You might also notice some of the other matters carefully prescribed relative to that night. We notice they were to stay in that house as they ate the meal, but they were not to eat it with trivialness and with slowness. They were to eat it in haste, their staff in their hand, shoes on their feet, fully clothed and ready to depart because, as you and I remember the record, they're going to depart with a thunderous notion of the Pharaoh's approval. It is to be noted perhaps one other set of issues on that particular slide. This will take us through the remainder of chapter 12 and on into chapter 13. This particular occasion, the keeping of this Passover, would usher in a period of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And just as surely as they were to remove leaven not only on that day, but throughout the period of that week... It was a rather significant occasion. They were not only not to eat it, they were to have no leaven in their house or in their quarters. 
And thus, that was to signify once and for all that which was the corruption emblemized and symbolized by the leaven, and that it was to be removed from them. And the deep significance will also be noticed in that this Passover was to be observed by those that were members of the covenant community, those that were circumcised. They were the only ones allotted by God the privilege and the blessing of keeping that Passover and partaking of it as God had so ordained. As those thoughts close, chapter number 12, we find the the tenth plague does indeed come. And as it comes, there's a great cry in Egypt because in every house in which it was ordained that there should be a death, there was one, the death of the firstborn. Firstborn of man, firstborn of beast. We can imagine the hundreds of thousands, if not far more, that met their death that night. And we remember that those who did not had the blood on the doorpost. It was those houses where the death angel passed by, and in fact there was no death brought to the members, the particular elements of that household. The death of the firstborn was a far-reaching plague indeed. And you and I see the eternal lesson of the way in which there were those who were able to bypass it, or not in fact suffer beneath it. And it had to do with the appearance of blood. It is to be noted, perhaps finally, In chapter 13, there's a sanctification of the firstborn. Notice that those who had been delivered and their firstborn had not died, those firstborn were sanctified to the occasion and calling of God. And with that sanctification, God again gave very definite instruction. It involved a number of matters detailed in chapter 13, as well as the books of Leviticus and Numbers. As we race to the conclusion of chapter 13, we notice that this people did indeed leave Egypt. As they left, they first of all came from Ramses to Sukkoth. And as they did so, God gave additional instructions relative to the Passover. As He did that, and as He gave instruction about the sanctification of the firstborn, it brings us to notice that this people were blessed mightily to have the direction and guidance of God who in a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, provided for them the way that they should go. And we notice that that pillar of fire and cloud was the emblematic recognition of the Son of God Himself. It was the second member of the Godhead leading them, appearing before them as this pillar of fire by night and pillar of cloud by day. Isn't it lovely to see this pre-incarnate record of the Christ leading the people of God, providing for them the right and proper direction in the ways that were noble? Because can we not appreciate a similar and parallel thing given to us today? It will be noted as we close that slide that there's some interesting things that you and I can now appreciate by way of lessons. As we look at two of them this evening, The first one to which we will turn our attention is found as we come near the close there of chapter 13. It is the record of the bones of Joseph. Isn't it somewhat amazing to retrace the timetable of those bones and the significance that they carried for Moses as well as ancient Israel and also the meaning that they would appreciate for you and for me today. In Genesis 50 verse 25 second to the last verse in that first book in the Bible. It was Joseph who, on his deathbed, 
Shortly before his life ended in character in the flesh on this earth, it was he who took an oath of the children of Israel. And that oath involved their promise that they would take with them his bones when they left the nation of Egypt. And in that very solemn occasion, we can see, can we not, that Joseph had a firm conviction and an absolute assurance that these people were going to leave Egypt. Even though by that time they had already been there several decades, several decades, nonetheless, Joseph knew well that they were going to leave. And they that would leave and proceed to a blessed land that would be their inheritance, a land that would be that grand land of Canaan. And Joseph, in fact, made them promise, take my bones with you. I would submit that all of us could give some thought to the fact that Moses not only knew well what Joseph had said, he did exactly what Joseph had commanded. In Exodus thirteen nineteen, part of our lesson for, this, for our study tonight, Moses took with him when they left Egypt those bones of Joseph. Despite the fact now that, notice, we are well over a couple of hundred years removed from the time that that promise was made. Isn't that staggering? Two hundred years have passed and this man's wishes for his dead bones and yet Moses is dutiful to keep the promise that Joshua had asked the children of Israel to make. Later we find in Joshua twenty four thirty two in the closing chapter of that book that those same bones are buried in Canaan when the children of Israel arrive there. By this point now, We are far more than just 200 years later. We are considerably longer than that. And notice again, the promise in its fullness was not only respected, but it was kept. Perhaps in all of that, there is appreciation that the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 11.22 says that this happened by faith. And we learn here a valuable lesson about faith. Just as surely as faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1, notice that in that definition it has the capability and the absolute realization of the fact that the substance of things hoped for, but it's the evidence or the assurance of what is not seen. Joseph didn't live long enough, of course, to see his own bones buried in the land of Canaan. He'd long since left the earthly scenes of this existence. But nonetheless, through the eye of faith, he knew well that it would take place and he was so certain of it that he made specific statements about the details of how it was to occur. There's a grand lesson about faith in that, isn't there? Because you and I too live and dwell through the eye of faith. There's still the incredible character of salvation And though you and I experience it here, we know the grandeur and fullness of it will not be appreciated until we reach those pearly climbs of that place called heaven. But notice you and I see that through the eye of faith. Just as surely as Joseph knew that his bones would be taken from Egypt and that they would be buried in Canaan, so too you and I are able to know of this place called heaven. And that, you and I, by the fact our name is in the book of life, can look forward to dwelling there. There is something to be said for the assurance in regards to salvation. How often did the New Testament writers bring us to that appreciation? 
In John 11, verses 25 and 26, when on that occasion it was Martha who in fact attempted to correct our Savior because she didn't understand, because her brother Lazarus had died, she in fact said, I know that he will rise at the resurrection at the last day. But you see, her assurance in that needed one final element of conviction because it was in the two verses that follow that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live again. You and I can thus ask, do you and I believe that? How often have we been called upon to visit that funeral home or that place of burial, that cemetery? And yet we should appreciate and know for certain that those who are the children of God will in fact rise to what's called a resurrection of the just in John 5.28. A resurrection of that just which will emanate in their experiencing all the goodness of an eternity with comfort and bliss and peace. That's something that perhaps is embedded in this lesson of faith to be seen in the bones of Joseph. For notice, he was so certain, he gave those orders and commandments. Are you and I as certain as you and I think about heaven? We should be. We must so live so that the certainty emanates with conviction and assurance in our life. In 1 John five thirteen, how did John state the character of that epistle of 1 John? These things are written, he said, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing, you might have life in His name. As he wrote that, he closed the verse by saying that you may know that you have eternal life. Those are resounding words, aren't they? That you may know. That leaves without the matter of uncertainty or the matter of ambiguity or the matter of failing to understand the certainty to be found in it. You may know that you have eternal life. Is your name, friend, written in the book of life? You and I should so live each day based on the pattern and character of this book that our name is written in that book. Paul wrote about those in Philippians 4 whose names were written there. Moses made note of it back in Exodus 32 and 3 about those names written there. And isn't it true in Revelation 20 verses 14 and 15 that you and I can understand the greatness of the names who are written there. We learn much from the bones of Joseph and his assurance relative to them. But there's another lesson that we can also appreciate. It is to be seen in that verse that was our lesson text tonight. When I see the blood. Perhaps we should devote the remainder of our time tonight to reflecting on when I see the blood. And what was the significance involved in the nature of that event? We remember in detail it went like this literally. They again were to take that lamb that they had gathered up, and on the fourteenth day it was to, its life was to be taken, and its blood was to be placed on the lintel and doorposts. And at midnight that night, when the death angel came through Egypt, on all the houses wherein the blood was seen, the angel would pass by, and there would be no death brought to that house, either for the men or the women or the beasts. And the way the Lord stated that is, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The parallel to that in the New Testament is so striking. 
And it is also so meaningful. In fact, blood finds its way into the sacred text on so many occasions. It is so vital to the lesson of truth. 447 times in the Old and New Testaments, the word blood appears. That alone signifies how often the matter of blood found its way into the God's deliverance and revelation of His truth. For instance, we find in Leviticus 17.14 that blood, in fact, is vital to the physical character of existence. The life is in the blood, the sacred writer penned for us. Well, you and I know today that medical science now understands that fact, but it didn't always. As recently as 400 years ago, there was still the belief that to make one well, one needed to let the blood in a procedure called bloodletting. And in that way, a fair amount of the person's blood was allowed to drain from his or her body. Their belief was that there was evil spirits in the blood, that there were these matters causing diseases. Of course, you and I now know that the life is in the blood. The blood is necessary for one's physical existence here. But in fact, it is also far more than that. You'll notice that as we've recounted what happened in Exodus 12, verse 13, so much more could rightly be said. Because also blood is vital to spiritual life as well. We noted earlier that it was vital for physical life, but let's take that a level deeper. It's vital for one's spiritual life. You see, there is no spiritual life separate and apart from God. If one is separated from God, he is lifeless spiritually. He's spiritually dead, and in the language of Ephesians 2 verse 1, he's dead in trespasses and sins. It is the case then that spiritual life as we're about to read, is to also connect it identically with and to be found only through the channel and the thoroughfare of the matter of blood. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews 9 verse 22 pointed out this fact. He may note that things in the Old Testament were purged and purified with blood, but he drew a New Testament parallel to it and said, "...without the shedding of blood is no remission." The remission of what? Sins. Without the shedding of blood is no remission. Given that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin, Hebrews 10 verses 1 and 4, and furthermore that they were unable to clarify, or I should say clear the conscience of those that were therein offering them, we learn then that those Old Testament animal sacrifices were never able to cleanse and purify the conscience and to allow one to stand remitted of sin before God ultimately and finally. Without the shedding of blood, though, is no remission. As we thus ask, what blood can it be if it's not animals? The only kind of blood that remains is human. However, there is a problem. Because you and I are sinners, you and I are unable to shed sufficient blood to cleanse sin. My blood, despite the fact I can shed it in some process or procedure, that blood would not cleanse myself or anyone else because I am a sinner. And the same can be said of you. And thus, one would seem to think that human blood in general also is insufficient. It is at this point, though, that the shedding of blood still is necessary and God answered the need. 
He initiated the process by the sending of His Son. And when that Son was born to Joseph and to Mary, there in that city of Bethlehem, His purpose for coming was to fulfill ultimately what had been written in in Exodus 12, verse 13. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. You see, that baby that was born, though he was the Son of God, he was going to submit himself in humility to a very difficult and harsh and hard death. Jesus was born to die. And just as surely as he did, it was the blood that he shed that allows, of course, and makes possible the remission of sins. Christ's blood, you see, is the agent of the New Testament. It is all built squarely upon him. In fact, in Matthew twenty six twenty eight, near, of course, the close of his life in the flesh, these scene of events took place that night prior to his crucifixion. He said, as he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, he said, this is my blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. There's mention again of blood, but the Lord said, I'm not shedding it for myself. This is shed for many for the remission of sins. And when He shed that blood, the capability of it, the forgiveness that it makes possible, the remission of sins that it, in fact, allows to occur, is something that we takes us back directly to that scene in Exodus chapter 12. Spiritual safety is only to be had when God sees the blood in your life and in mine. In fact, let's amplify that thought just a bit more by looking at some more of the features of that blood and also what is stated in some other passages about it. So far, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. We've highlighted the thought that that takes us down the stream of time from the days of Exodus to the coming of the Christ and to the blood that He shed at Calvary. When it is very specifically noted in John 19.34, that forthwith came forth blood and water. When that Roman soldier pierced his gentle side, that blood, what purpose does it serve, and what does it make possible for you and for me? Might I ask, what does the Bible say about those occasions when one in fact is covered by it? and the way in which one is covered with it. Perhaps we should well begin in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. When Paul penned that letter to the Roman congregation, he said, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so ye also should walk in newness of life. Isn't it still significant that in baptism, one is buried with him in what? Death. It is an occasion in which one is buried with Christ in death, but that death is where his blood was shed. And so it is in that attribute of baptism. One, in fact, comes in contact with the efficacy and the power and the unlimited greatness of the blood that Jesus shed. But now remember we've said, when I see the blood. We will recall what happened when the deaf angel did not see the blood in Exodus 12. There was death brought to that house. And horrible, terrible death at that. 
because there was a great cry at midnight when it was understood that there was death in so many of the houses. When the blood is not seen today, death will follow. Spiritual death continues. And in the finality, if that again isn't remedied at some point, eternal separation from God forevermore. Everlasting death. Isn't that the way Jesus described it in Matthew twenty-five forty-six, When He said, These shall go away into everlasting punishment. That death is described as an outer darkness, isn't it? It is described as that case in which one can think back to the death that came to those households with no blood on the doorpost. Can we not begin to see the essentiality, the necessity, the importance of baptism? When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No baptism, no blood. If one isn't scripturally baptized, one is not covered in the blood of Christ, for that is the only scriptural way in which it can be contacted or in which its blessings can be attributed to the individual. But however, that too isn't all. Redemption is expressly stated to come through that blood, which of course is contacted at baptism. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, we read, "...in whom we have forgiveness of sins, even the matter of redemption." And notice the word whom... That particular pronoun refers back to Christ. When He shed His blood, making it possible for you and for me to know and to experience forgiveness of sin, it takes us directly to when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When God sees a person who's been scripturally baptized and who continues to live faithfully in light of that confession that he or she made, He sees an individual But he sees far more than that. He sees one covered with the powerful umbrella of the blood of Christ. He doesn't see the filthiness that accords to you and to me, but rather he sees one cleansed and sanctified by that blood. He sees one who lives in the very nature and shadow of the blessing of the Christ. In 2 Corinthians 4.11, we read that just as surely as his life is magnified by the way that you and I live, that we are able to appreciate the power of that blood as we shed it forth, or share it forth, I should say, to others. Baptism, oh indeed, that's the way in which this redemption arrives. But you'll notice that blood leads us to also note Hebrews 9.14. It is on that occasion that Hebrew writer wrote that it is that blood that allows us to have cleansed conscience as we serve dutifully and responsibly in the kingdom of our Lord. Oh, what that blood is able to do. To cleanse you, to cleanse me, as we contacted in baptism, the death angel passes by, and you and I have life rather than death. Isn't the parallel rather striking? For just as surely as those Israelites with the blood of the doorpost were able to rejoice with the life that they enjoyed, delivered from Egypt as they were. You and I have been delivered from sin. The deliverance is paralleled in that fashion again. And that life that we've been raised to walk in is a life that they enjoyed in liberty from the slavery in Egypt. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. There's a song in some songbooks with that very title, When I See the Blood. I don't think it's in the book we happen to be using here. But the words are so interesting and meaningful. 
when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. You'll notice also on that slide that that forgiveness of sin is perhaps etched in yet another interesting passage found in John chapter 6. Jesus presented a teaching that troubled many of those on that occasion. In fact, it was a teaching such that when he concluded it, there were some who walked no more with him because it cut them to the heart with its demands. And it cut them to the heart with what it required of them. What was that teaching? And the Lord iterated it several times during His lesson that, on that occasion. If we may perhaps notice quickly, two of the things were, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. There's another mention of blood. I would submit to you that that too at least has one reflection to what we're learning about tonight. When I see the blood... You see, it's one thing to be baptized, to have one's sins washed away, and to begin that Christian walk and that beautiful journey. But might we note that it requires faithfulness as well, a continued existence. And it still is true that Jesus, in that text we just read, used present tense verbs, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh in an ongoing way, not just once, not just a couple of times, but in an ongoing way, you have no life in you. That doesn't have direct reference to the Lord's Supper. It, in fact, has direct reference to a person's life, his conversation, his conduct. Are you and I, day by day, drinking his blood and eating his flesh? Are you and I, day by day, living, covered with this blood that keeps us cleansed, that keeps us redeemed, and that keeps our name in the book of life, and that keeps us on the path toward eternal life. For if we fall to the side and become unfaithful and we apostatize, you notice that Hebrews 10.26 says there's no more sacrifice for sins. That blood, though it's still powerful, it's not powerful for us because we're no longer eating His flesh and drinking His blood. That may sound somewhat gruesome in a sense, but... Basically, it's very meaningful, isn't it? And it's powerful because it challenges us to ask, does God see the blood when He looks at you and when He looks at me? Because if He doesn't see the blood, the death angel's waiting. And the death angel is soon going to come our way. And if, again, the problem isn't remedied, sin will lead to our death. Romans 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Heaven has paid the price so that He can see the blood. Have you applied the blood to your life tonight in your baptism? Have you turned and relinquished control of your life to Him? You'll notice that as we perhaps conclude our lesson with these final thoughts, our study tonight has been a thrilling one if we've been reminded that over 1,500 years there was a powerful parallel to that blood that was put on the doorposts. Now today, we literally don't put it on the, on the doorpost of a building. You must cover your life with it, your heart with it. And have you done that tonight? If we could assist one or more in your response to the gospel call of invitation, might I invite you to think soberly and seriously, does God see the blood of Christ when He looks at me? If you can't answer yes to that tonight, please, please, in the urgency of the moment, 
think seriously about what you're about to do. And if you need to respond publicly, do that at once. We'll be happy to assist you in affirming your belief, the note of your repentance as we take your confession, and we'll be happy to bury you in baptism so that you can contact His blood, and then God will see the blood of His Son when He sees you. If you've done that, but you have not been faithful and true, as we were taught in Revelation 19 that we must be, then come back to your first love. Christ again will cover you with His blood, and He'll do so rejoicingly, because you can rejoice too. If we can help you by praying on your behalf, as we did this morning, we'd be honored to do that for someone else, if that's the need in your life. But again, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. If you need to respond so that the blood will be yours in its blessings, why not do that while together we stand and while we sing?